Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate investing podcast with your host i gotta switch it up Dude, on them you just broke everyone's audio <laughs> with your host austin yay and mayu what's going on everybody austin what's what's new man nothing is new you should never ask me that question because it's Dude, always you've got like today. a bunch of wholesale deals that are that you're looking for people to send out to right yeah, a couple of yeah, a couple of things on the wholesaling world. One of it is is that we purchased a cottage. Instead of wholesaling it, we're planning to flip it. And the reason being is because when we wholesale cottages, most of the time it's going to end up being an end user investor who is buying it. So it just makes more sense for us to take it on the MLS anyways. So we're planning to fix and flip that one. You don't want to keep it? I don't know. I would like to, but I mean, I, I'm also a sucker for quick cash. So <laughs> I, I have no desire to own a cottage. If it be, like a cottage versus making six figures in profit, I'll take the six figures in profit. Yeah. That's um, fair. Yeah. So, so that's been going on, sending out a, a couple of wholesale deals, a couple of leads we've been working on. I just actually recently got QuickBooks, believe it or not. And shit, that is game changing. <laughs> I'm going through a course right now. I'm like, damn, I wish I had this much, much earlier when we we're doing a couple of our JVs. We we're doing the old fashioned Excel. And although we kept on top of things, man, like it was just such a waste of time comparative to what QuickBooks offers. And this is not sponsored, by the way. I'm just saying it's going to definitely save me a lot of time on the bookkeeping side of things. Yes, I still do all my shit in Excel. So like, (laughs) oh, you got to You got to get off of that. Like, trust me, like I've just been on it for like 15 minutes playing around. I'm like, this is this is definitely going to save so much time. Like they charge you, they charge you per corp, right? Yeah, yeah, I believe they do charge you per corp. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of a pain. (laughs) It is. But like, you know what, like the convenience is there. And honestly, our time is worth so much more at this point. Yep. Yep. Very yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I fired my contractor on my flip project, which was an interesting experience to say the least. I don't think we'll go too deep into it because she does know I'm a uh, on social and she knows everything I do. So not trying to go too deep into it, but timelines just weren't meeting up with our expectations and it just got a little bit messy. And we just, I agreed to pay art a little bit more than I should have just to kind of get her to keep quiet and just like sign some documents away. So that was an interesting experience, but it's really the first time I had to fire a contractor. Usually like I'd, I'd be able to like work with them, like get them to like just put pedals to the metal and just kind of get it done. But it is what it is kind of part of the experience, right? You know what I find interesting is usually I find that if you have a good social media presence, people want to actually go above and beyond, yeah. right? Because it means more referrals. It's like a long-term thing, you know? Yeah, that's, these people just weren't very smart. <laughs> Okay. It is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. I'm also in the process. I'm, I'm going to be selling off. I, well, I'm going to be listing my condo. We'll, we'll see, you know, what we get for it. Did a little bit of reno work on it. Just put a nice accent wall, you know, those kind of things, nice staging. And now it's going live a little bit of electrical. That accent wall you did, was it just paint or you, you put like actual MDF design, like similar? To yeah. Mine? Yeah. I, I don't remember what it's called, but you know, those like wood trim stuff that you do. Yeah. To, like, yeah, make, like, a nice design. yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we did one of those. And honestly, like I have a pretty good contact cost of me, I think like eight or 900 bucks. And I, I'd expect at least a 2K, like bare minimum, yeah. if I had to put a price, bare minimum two, two to three K in value. Worst case, it will help you sell your place so much quicker. But on, yeah. anyways, the condo market's so heated up. So yeah, it, yeah go, I, I'll tie to someone's emotion. I, I gave my realtor the contact. He was just like, yo, honestly, for this price, you might as well just throw one of these in every single condo and just sell it. Right. Like from his perspective as well, he's like, yeah, no, it's just going to make it way easier for me. So, yeah, so, so that's going on. And really the condo, like exiting that market, it's just like, it comes down to a return on equity. Right. Mm-hmm. I had a significant amount of equity tied up in there. I looked at it as, you know what, like the condo market in Toronto could potentially keep going up, but there's an opportunity cost to my equity. And if I refinance this out to the max, I'm not yeah. going to be able to cash flow on it. Right. So yeah. it's just like, do I really want this property in my portfolio for the next like five, 10 years, or yeah. is this, is this the time to kind of exit it? Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the condo market's so heated. So, and you've been holding on, I think yours was built right during COVID where the yeah. condo market was like taking a shit, but now it's uh, picking up. So you have your perfect exit. <laughs> yep. Yep. We're, awesome. we're also listing three towns in Windsor. Awesome. Why don't you tell everyone about that? Yeah. I mean, just on a high level, Mayu and I, we're not unloading everything we have. Like we still have assets. The ones that perform well, we're keeping it in our portfolio. But with these three towns, we could refi it. But if we refi it, we're going to be pretty much cash flow neutral or negative. And if it is neutral, if interest rates do go up, it's eventually going to turn negative, right? So it's just not a very strong asset to hold in our portfolio right now. So we feel like we're better off unlocking the equity and deploying that capital elsewhere, especially in an overheated market. Like who knows, real estate might continue to appreciate like crazy, but I, uh, we're trying not to be greedy. We made our gains on this property by buying it a while ago. We want to cash out, either hold it in cash, private lend it or redeploy it into some other asset class. Yeah. So that's the game plan there. Yeah. I, I think there's another part to it as well. Like we bought it with the intention of making it into a student rental right now, just everything going on in the market. Like I think Austin's tied up in like his wholesaling business. I'm going to be tied up in the future as well. We're just looking at it as, do we re- really want to deal with this in the near future? And, you know, we're not even going to be able to qualify for refinancing it pretty soon. Right. So that option is basically gone. So we're just looking at it as whoever's going to buy these towns, ideally, like it's, if it's an investor, then they're looking to, you know, put in, student bedrooms and make it into a long-term student rental play. But if it's a first time home buyer as well, I think that makes sense. These are basically going to be some of the cheapest units in Windsor that hit the market. And we're just looking at like a quick and easy get out. That and also it's like 500 meters to 600 meters from the university. So we're talking about a five minute walk. Man, like I wish university was still open. We could have justified holding it, holding it longer because that would be like cash flow beast, but it is what it is at the end of the day, like market dynamics change and we could adjust down and wait, but yeah, yeah, we just made so much that. money on it that we just, we're just being greedy and we're just trying to get out of it. But exactly, you know, that brings us into our guest today as well. So, so Frank is someone we actually met him just from the Rise Facebook group. At least that's how I met him. He was commenting. He had some interesting opinions. And when we connected with him, we realized that he's actually done a crazy amount of real estate, both from a development perspective. He's a very active agent, a lot of consulting that he does for very large corporations. So we started picking his brain a little bit about what he thinks his outlook, like what his outlook is on the market. And the insight that he offered myself and Austin was just like, it's just nice to hear a very like unbiased, like hear the facts. And he's been in the real estate game for many decades, which gives him uh, experience in multiple cycles, which we really liked as well. Yeah, exactly. You you nailed it, Mayu. And I am very excited to bring you guys this two-part episode. So this is going to be part one of two, where we're going to be talking again, as Mayu said, like the market cycles and his thoughts on the market. And second part, we're not to reveal too much, but we're going to go into more Frank's strategy 
and his story. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very, very special guest, Frank Taylor. Frank, how are you this morning? Thank you. I'm, I'm doing great. And it's a real pleasure to be with you guys. I think you guys are doing a wonderful job and have thoroughly enjoyed your podcast. Awesome. Really Thanks, appreciate it. Yeah, yeah Frank I, was a very active member or in the Rise Facebook group, which is how we started talking to him. And he's definitely had uh, a significant amount of experience. So, so Frank, if you could just summarize, I know you've done so much in the last like couple of decades, but if you could summarize yourself and your background, just for anyone that doesn't know you, like, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I very much like yourself started in real estate at a very young age. I had started a company when I was 18 straight out of high school, a commercial and residential cleaning company. Started doing that when I was in high school and the money was so great that I decided not to go for uh, a university degree and straight into business. And it went very well. So within a short period of time, I was able to go from the two-man operation and eventually up to, in a short period of time, 58 employees with a business that ran 24 hours, seven days a week, because we did residential work by day and commercial at night. But it also was a great example of just getting to even know a lot of the commercial buildings, because we did everybody, Olympia, York, Colliers, Macaulay's, Leon's, all Leon's furniture service calls. So it, it was kind of an introduction to me to the commercial real estate side of the world. And then during that time frame, I was able to purchase my first property at the age of 21. And then I uh, began buying investment properties actually out in Hamilton. And because part of my business model was also we did fire restoration work through my company, which is very involved. Can you imagine if you're going to a fire? So there's a restoration construction element. So I decided to look for properties that I could take single family and then convert them into legally convert them into triplexes, duplexes, things like that. But then I would do them myself. So I would get the, the properties and uh, rebuild them on the weekends kind of thing and thoroughly enjoyed that. And then through that time frame, I decided I really enjoyed the actual design and rebuild of, of real estate. And I divested out of my company and went into real estate full time. And so then I have had a career started in 1990 which was the beginning of the somewhat of the 1990 recession. It kind of really started to take hold in 91, but I was a licensed realtor for 27 years. So investing in real estate for 35 years. And then through my career, I was actively involved in our real estate board. So I was a director of the Hamilton Realtors Association and then chaired, I was the chairman of our commercial division, which was at the time called the Real Estate Commercial Council. And then we also had other boards that were part of that council. So it was all of Niagara, Kitchener, Waterloo. We had members, so on and so forth. And then I also sat as a director with the ARIA, Ontario Real Estate Association Commercial Council as well. And I've sat on as a director in past years with the Hamilton Apartment Association. So I've, I've been actively involved both on the ground level and through associations and, and participated in federal 
committees to try and lobby the Canadian government to work on the, the capital gains situation. In the States, if you own a piece of real estate and you sell it, you're able to take that gain. And as long as you reinvest that gain back into real estate within a 12-month period of time, you don't pay tax. In Canada, that's not the case. And sadly, the biggest lobbyist group, believe it or not, that, that prevented this change is the bank association, the bank lobby. They don't want assets to be sold. They want them refinanced. Mm-hmm. So they... So that is one of that is one of the biggest issues I see with real estate in Canada across the whole for investment purposes. And it's something that I think groups like this could be great because they could lobby their federal MPs to try and see if changes can be made. Because, I mean, you know yourself, every time that you sell a property or flip it, there's a gain. I and almost I don't, don't want to sell. <laughs> right. Because yeah. it's like, oh, I don't want to pay the yeah. gains. That was such an interesting part of of like history. Like that makes so much more sense. You know, we don't have the capital gains tax. So here it's really, you really just have to refinance. Yeah. Well, imagine what it could do for the economy as well, right? So you've got a lot of institutional ownership, which usually in Canada tended to be families. Like the Reichmans owned Olympia and York, right? And there are very prominent families in the country that have a lot of assets but just simply due to the gains have kept those assets and can't really sell them because why would you want to pay the government, you know, that sum of money. So if you remove that, it would stimulate the economy because you start seeing a lot of assets that have sat and of course they'll rebuild them and reconstruct them. But the biggest downfall to that is the banking system. They want refinance. They don't want that asset sold. (laughs) <laughs> they want you to refinance what you've got and then turn around and buy, but they don't want to let go of that leverage. So it's disappointing, but it's something that young individuals can start working towards. And the only way it's going to change is if enough people in Canada begin to really say enough, right? So mm-hmm. those types of things need to change. So anyway, I specialized in the business and multi-residential, multi-unit residential was always my area of expertise. So whether it was single family homes and then converting them into a rental or rebuilding them for rentals. So my business really ground floor started with first time investors, which was great. And I was over my career able to help individuals who were starting first time and then build wealth through real estate and develop that for some of them, many of them into a long-term residual income and a business. So I dealt with all aspects, the acquisition, the sale, redevelopment for highest and best use. Obviously I needed to become you know, an expert with regards to that and fire retrofit, hydro compliance, legality. So when I looked at properties, I'd always look at things with a different set of eyes, not just as the realtor, but what it would take to make sure that the property we were looking at was something that they could use legally. Because the the legal use is very important because then that way, when you do sell it or when you're looking for financing, you're able to utilize, you know, obviously legal rents. So that was key. So yeah, there really isn't there really isn't anything with regards to investment that I haven't dealt with from flipping 
and to multi-unit acquisitions, light industrial investments, believe it or not, light industrial investment plazas, which is really one of the hotter commodities right now. In light industrial, meaning that there's no heavy industrial, so it's fairly clean. Plazas, yeah, I did it all. Office, medical office buildings, but primarily investment long-term. So this is going to be a fun podcast. There's so much to unpack. Unfortunately, right. guys, we did you a favor. We usually don't do this with all the guests, but we knew Frank had accomplished so much. So we have a couple of major talking points that we do want to touch on. And let's just dive right into it. So before we get into the experiences and some of the more complicated topics, let's start off with the basics. So you gave us an intro on how you got started in real estate. You started with that cleaning service at 18 year olds in a lot of commercial buildings. But how did you have that transition and confidence to build up the knowledge in real estate? Just because you're cleaning and managing a business doesn't directly tie into the knowledge of investing, right? It doesn't tie into understanding cap rates, understanding renovation, so on and so forth. So how did that transition work from an 18-year-old into eventually buying your first couple of properties in Hamilton and learning that conversion process? Well, I was making a lot of money. And in in the good old days, that was cash right? Most people paid by cash. And, and I was making a lot of money back in the day. I mean, I was 18 years old. I was, I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot today, but you know, I'm a dinosaur. So going back a long time ago, 500 bucks a day was a lot of dough for, uh, you know, and then six days a week and then up to a thousand dollars and it grew from there. And so then obviously I, I looked to real estate. I had a, a cousin that was heavily involved in investment properties out in Hamilton and then he kind of, you know, kind of directed me to Hamilton as a great place to buy because it's very affordable and, and a high percentage of renters in relation to ownership. Now that's changed, but still a good percentage. So I just dove in and uh, started rebuilding the properties myself. And, and then I loved it. I it completely loved it. You know, when I had the cleaning company, I had 58 employees, carpet cleaning, kind of like roofers, tough tough dudes, very physical job, but there's a dynamic with having a lot of employees. And I really liked kind of doing my own thing and not having to worry about making sure that people were going to show up to work and so on and so forth. So I went and focused 100% on real estate. And then when I started, it literally was during just at the beginning of the 1990s recession. So it was dynamic to say the least, to try and learn how to make money in a downward cycle. So you guys have been lucky because you've really gone through what is what it will be considered maybe the golden era of real estate wealth because it's been an upward cycle for over 11 years. And that's the longest in history. Go Fred, ahead. Did you, did you have a couple of properties before the downward, the downward cycle started in like 1992, yes. right? Yes, yes. Okay. So you had a so I, properties already and then you yeah jumping into things as the economy was kind of going down. I literally started in real estate as a licensed realtor when the market started going down. And I did buy in the peak. I did buy in the peak. You know, the 1990s is a very important era for, I think, any investor today to try and begin to study, to understand what potentially could unfold in the near future. And, and not in any way am I trying to be an alarmist, but during the 90s, 80s, mid 80s to the 90s, it was a boom time, just like it is right now. Insanity, multiple offers, 
most of my friends at the time were realtors. They were driving Ferraris and Porsches and everybody was making money. It was, it was the good old, good old days. And then things changed. In this case, the precipitous to that event was the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And at that time, China and Russia sternly warned the United States that if they got involved, that there would be severe repercussions. So people literally, honestly, thought that there was the potential of a third world war. And the economy started slowing down dramatically. And so what you started finding was that you had real estate kind of stalled. And then the activity, you started now, you had no listings. And now all of a sudden you start seeing a, a listings start to accumulate. And then when offers do come in, they, they're not obtaining the price point that they had expected. And then the ride began where you were continually going down, constantly going down for many, many years. To be honest with you, it was like four or five year timeline of just a slow motion decline. And then you ask yourself, well, how does, you know, how do you make money or how do you do well by that? And what happened was, was, you know, people got themselves over leveraged. Mm -hmm. So they put up their houses for sale. So now when you go, you know, today you look down the street, you don't see for sale signs, right? And if you do, it's got a sold already on it. But, <laughs> but in those days, Honestly, honest to goodness, there wasn't a street you could go down that there weren't either almost every other house or every three or four houses had a for sale sign. And then people decided, oh, I'm going to get out of this big mortgage and I'm going to downsize. So, so when there's a market shift, the important thing for everybody to understand is that it doesn't, it just all of a sudden the, the floor doesn't drop out. It is a process. And, and then people begin to get out of their bigger homes, they buy into the smaller homes and, and the whole bump starts to kind of go down there. And the activity is still very active, but you'll find that in this case, at the time that I was in real estate, at, at certain points, my cousin and I, because I started working with my cousin, we had 50 listings at any given time. 35 to 50 listings was common, which is unheard of today. And there's an old saying in real estate, and it still applies today, list to live, right? So those who have the listings are those the ones that will make the most money. So it was, it was interesting, to say the least. And then we started, obviously, through that, started seeing a lot of power of sales. And, and then from there, we saw power of sales that weren't even selling. And so then we then would see a transfer from, let's say, Scotiabank, power of sale from Scotia, and then it would eventually go on to the books of CMHC. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because I see a lot of the same flags, the same warnings that were reminiscent in the latter part of the 80s that are very similar to what we're seeing today. A lot of smoke in the air, right? It's a lot of smoke in the air. So today's market is a definitely a seller's market. And when it's a seller's market, that's when it starts to become, become a buyer beware market, right? Beware, right? You, when, you know, prices are going crazy. And then we're looking at the average sale price and we're looking at almost all of greater Toronto area, which has a population of 
what is it, three million or more, with a medium average sale price of of a million dollars, that is that is just that's really hard to comprehend. And then we have interest rates that are at historical lows, like it's just insane. So some of the principles that need to be focused on right now, and, and the majority of my institutional uh, investors are all preparing for a major adjustment. And, and the reason that is because, you know, first of all, you got to look at certain reports. So the UBS, I sent it to you guys for a review, was the UBS Global Bubble Report. I don't know if you had a chance to review it, but it's mm-hmm. a great, great report for anyone who's listening to look up. The UBS report is the Union Bank of Switzerland, and they publish an annual report called the Bubble Report that is revered through financial institutions globally. And it's a scientific report. And in their findings in September 20, they found the Toronto market, Toronto area market to be the third largest bubble in the world. So that's something that people need to pay attention to. Right. Another factor is, and and I know that Austin, you have a background in the automotive finance industry, but for me, when I was a realtor and I obviously didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any formal education. It was just on the ground, paying attention to, to different industries. And the automotive industry was an industry that we always paid attention to because if cars were selling, especially in Ontario, it meant people were working and the economy would be doing well. And surprising enough, who would have thought during COVID, you would have thought, and in the, in the market industry, I'm sure you can attest to this, prior to COVID was slowing down. I'm sure that you were in it, right? It was starting to slow down just yeah. before COVID. Correct? Yeah. The car yeah. market. To be, to be the specific. car market, yeah. yeah. And then came to basically, like everything, came to a standstill in, in April. And then all of a sudden it starts to boom. And from the clients that I have that are in the automotive industry, they said they had never seen a busier time frame. And these are guys that have been in the business 20, 25 years as they did during the summer and the fall. It was just insane. Mm. And I said, well, what are you guys doing? Like, what is, what is precipitating that? And that was that the manufacturer started offering no money down, no payments for six months, Right. Giving away vehicles. If you got the credit, you could go get a vehicle. So that was a concern. Yeah. And now the automotive sales has just declined January 21 over January 20, 17.4%. And, and you might have you might have some good insight on that, Austin, right? Yourself being being in the industry. Yeah, I can I can definitely agree to everything you're saying. That pretty much aligns to the data that we see as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so that, let, let me ask yeah. you this. And so we've been in a bull run for, for a significant amount of time. Like that, that yeah. everyone knows that 2017, I think we had a minor, like very minor correction, like a little blip, right. Of a year yeah. where like it went yeah. down and then it went back up. So, you know, how do you answer the question of whether we're in a 2017 scenario versus whether we're in a late 1980 scenario? Like what makes that difference? So the concerning, the concern. 2017 was brought about by government intervention, primarily, yep. right? Yeah. Uh, versus 1980s, it was kind of a, a loss in consumer confidence as a result of, like you said, the Gulf War and like various other like interest rates and things like that. So 
you know, do you think we're in for a 1980s type correction or do you think we're just in for a little blip like the, like 2017? I am of the opinion and I'm not trying to be negative in any way or, 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 you know, place any fear. I believe that in many, in many uh, individuals in the industry believe that we're setting ourselves up for a 1990s situation that could even be worse than what the 1990s was being part of your forum. One of many of the messages I start I observe and recently has been uh, postings with regards to appraisals, right? And, and so normally when a market gets heated, the Bank of Canada will increase the, the, the interest rate to slow the market down. But because of COVID, they're not doing that. So I know myself through the individuals in the business, brokers, appraisers, that there's directions that are coming down now that are from the banks, underwriting practices are changing. So the directives are to the appraisers to really begin to be very sure of the price point that they're going to appraise the property. Because if that individual asset comes back onto the books, to the bank, guess who they're going to go after? They're going to go after the appraisal firm and their professional liability insurance. And and then you've got, of course, CMHC, and CMHC recently did something which they've never done before. And, and so you've got to pay attention to this stuff. They, they announced that they could underwrite a 48% decline in real estate values across the country nationally, and that they could sustain with a unemployment rate of 24%. And people jumped on that and said CMHC was saying that prices would drop 48%. Now, that's not what they said. What they said was that they could underwrite it. And, and they were making that announcement, not just for Canadians, but they were making that announcement so that uh, financial institutions like the World Bank, they needed to know that they had the ability to underwrite a massive loss without going bankrupt themselves. So that was kind of a very important statement that should be paid, you should be paying attention to that. There's, there, there has to be a reason why they're saying that. And then in the end of that report, they said that they are predicting a uh, adjustment in the market of 18%. Now I know last year they made a prediction that was basically the same, but there are a bunch of factors that have come into this whole situation that no one would have expected. Who would expect the government to welfare the country and not just welfare the country, welfare multi-billion dollar corporations, right? They're, they're paying for the wages for major corporations that are making billions of dollars in profit, but they're subsidizing their, their income. Who could have imagined that, right? It's just, that's not something that anybody could possibly fathom. And so when you've got that much, and they're printing money, they don't have the money, right? So, so they're gonna, there is going to come a point if you pay attention to the forecasts and the economists out there, it's something very similar to Venezuela. Venezuela was the wealthiest country in South America and their standard of living was one of the highest in the world. And, but they, printed money and 
uh, in the circumstances to try and prop up their economy. And so there are concerning issues and flags that, that we have to pay attention to. Retail sales have fallen 3.4% in December over last year. And you say, okay, well, that's because a lot of the stores were closed. But no, actually, Amazon and different services such that have boomed, right? So it is a bit of a signal. Rental rates in Toronto, rental rates in Toronto have dropped 21.9% in the last year for one bedrooms, 21%. So think about all the one bedroom condos or smaller, even bachelor condos that investors have purchased. And then all of a sudden their lease comes up and then the, and then the rental rates have dropped 21%. That There's an explanation as to why we're seeing a shift in the condo market right now. There's a lot of factors, you know, and it's interesting because if you've got a two bedroom, the two bedrooms have fared well, or much better anyway, but the smaller one bedrooms or the or junior apartments or the bachelors have really become problematic. And so when you look at a city like Toronto, Toronto right now has more cranes in the ground than any city in North America. So that includes all of Mexico, all of the United States, Anywhere in the country, Toronto has more development going on. And the ma majority of that is condominiums. And a majority of those condominiums have been purchased 70% by investors, right? Buying on spec, which is smart. Great money has been made. But now many of those developments are now starting to come online. And then those individuals who purchased those have basically, you know, obviously we're targeting a specific income, but now the numbers have dropped 21%. So that is something that we need to pay attention to, right? Another report that was just issued was that through the TREB, Toronto Real Estate Board, was that they just did a survey. And I don't know how they went about doing this, but the numbers were significant. You've probably seen it in the news that they said that somewhere up to 60 or 70% of investors in Toronto are planning on selling this year. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that, that stat, and a lot of these stats have been there for a long time, right? Like people have always said, you know, interest rates are going to go up. Affordability is like hitting a, hitting a, a cap. Like, I guess rent rates have been falling in Toronto for like a year. There's all these like red flags that have always been there. And it's just a matter of like, will this bubble even pop? Cause like we've been hearing about, you know, a Toronto real estate bubble or, or Canada real estate bubble for years. And like, the market keeps going up, right? So, yeah, I know. And I know. People, have, people have sat on the sidelines in fear of the bubble popping for a long time. And, and the reality is like, none of us really know when this will happen, but what goes up eventually generally comes down at some point, right? So Frank, what I'd like to really hear about, and I think you pointed out some good resources for people to look at the, the UBS and the, the, the Canadian car manufacturing industry, which I thought was very interesting. I didn't mean to cut you off back then. So I don't know if there was another oh, stat. Okay that you want to, to share with us. But I'd also really like to hear about back in the 90s when, because you had already had a few properties, you bought, you mentioned that you bought it at the peak and now we're going into down, down, downward cycle back in the 90s. How does the investment strategy change when you're looking at a downturn versus in an upward market? Okay, so you, the strategy changes in, in only in one way. And that is now you're going to look at properties and assets that you're going to keep for the long term, right? We've been in a market in which people have been swinging in and out 
and like a revolving door, buy an asset, fix it up, turn it out, right? The majority have been going in for quick money, which who can blame anybody to do that? It's just crazy, right? I have a friend of mine who's a coworker, bought a house in March of last year, pre-construction, and then uh, made a small down payment on that. And then just recently sold when the second payment is due, sold that piece of paper for $300,000. Nice. That's insane, right? That's <laughs> insane, uh, right? So, so you need to then start looking at assets in a different light of, you gotta see the way I worked my real estate career, it was probably because of how it began with the market being what it was, was when you're looking at an asset, is this gonna be something that you can see that you're gonna own for 20, 25 years? I'll give you an example. When I first bought my investment properties, my first three, I had made a plan for my children's wealth in that each property was designated to each child in that when they were born, I had the amortization so that it would end at the age of 18 when they were ready to go into university, be paid off, and then, and then each child could use that income to go through whatever level of education they'd like to go through, okay? I also took $5,000 upon their birth and we bought stock. And, and that stock was literally, an, you know, purchase it. In this case, it was Microsoft and Disney. And the goal was when they get married, we'll give them that stock. We, you know, do with what they will, buy a house, pay their wedding and so on and so forth. I, it was always a long-term investment. And so when I bought the properties that I purchased, I said to myself, are these in locations? Locations always going to be key. Are these in locations that I'm going to want to keep a property uh, for the next 25, 30 more years or an asset that I'm going to want to leave to my children? And that's how I kind of schooled my clients. And then when we looked at, at assets and because of my background in rebuilding, I was able to I would, first of all, I was able to point out any areas of concern that I had, and I was good at being able to give them an idea of what it was going to cost, like realistic of what it was going to cost to rebuild the property, but also to be able to project what their upside would be. And so I was then able to say to them, okay, what, what would be, what, who, who do you want as your client? Because always think of your tenants as clients, right? Because that's your business right? They are your customer. And then what type of tenant profile do you want? And then we would design the buildings to accommodate or to attract that type of tenant profile. And I have to tell you, a huge majority of my clients, 27, 28 years later, still own the assets that I sold them. And when they would call me sometimes and have issues and they wanted to sell, I would be like, okay, so what's causing you to want to sell? And they'd be like, oh, that's, you know, management issues or tenant issues. And I would talk them out of selling. We'd overcome the issue and they'd keep that asset and accumulate wealth. So to answer your question is that you have to start just looking at it for a long-term run rather than a short-term run, right? And, and then as long as you buy right, buy right by meaning that it's something that First of all, is going to cover the rent, cover the mortgage, all expenses. 
it's going to be something that you're going to want to keep and you'll have enjoyment through that ownership, then that's a great investment. And so that's kind of the model that we, we went with you so know? That, and it worked. That, yeah. So that definitely goes to the old adage, like you invest in real estate for the long term. anyone who invests in it in the short term, like it's just a greater fool's theory. You just hope that someone pays more a couple months, maybe a couple of years from now, which you can't bank on, right? You can't bank no. on appreciation in such a short period of time. It's a long-term game. Also, Connick quickly wanted to touch on something. So we we're talking about the market dynamics a bit earlier. I just want to bring opposing view and, and let, I want to hear your thoughts on it as well. How sure. do we know when something is going to, like how, how long is that transition between kind of the bubble and the burst? Because right now, if we just look at the data, our months on inventory are very low. It's like 1.1, right? Or like 0.9. So all of that would point towards continued pressure on prices going up because of the supply and demand dynamic being out of whack. At what, how, how do you know that balance between the current data of what's going to happen in the next couple of months? Because I think it's safe to say for the next couple of months, you would see some sort of upward pressure on pricing because of yes, those specific metrics. I agree. But, but versus a long time, uh, not long-term view, but versus that view where at any time things could change, right? Like how do you balance both of those point of views? Well, it's, it's, it's crystal ball. So I agree with you that the good times are still going. And right now it's a seller's market. So if someone's thinking of selling or wanting to sell, now is the time. Can't, not a better time, right? It is also a buyer beware situation, right? You know, you're kind of going to Vegas and you got, you're shooting the craps. And hey, you know, if you get a, in sevens, you win. And if you get, uh, you know, two, two ones, then it's not so good. I, I don't know, because you see all the fundamentals that we used to use to gauge these types of economic shifts, nothing makes sense anymore. We're, we're living in a world, honestly, on so many levels, stock market, you look at Bitcoin, look at everything. Nothing makes sense. So my, it's, what I will tell you is that an event will occur. And I don't know what the event will be, but I will tell you that it's, it's my feeling that the precipitous to a market shift or adjustment will probably be something seismic occurring in the stock market. Okay. Something will occur that will cause that to have an issue, which then will transfer into real estate. So it will be an event that will occur. Who knows? I mean, there's so many factors going on right now. I mean, I, I'll just throw something out and you guys may or may not know anything. Have you guys heard, have you heard of the Great Reset? Do you guys know anything about that? I've heard a bit about I've it. I've heard about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, dig into it because it's something that you should be because it's real and it's not a conspiracy theory. It's, it's real. And it comes out of the economic forum and is basically a thesis paper that started about 30 years ago. Um, and the precipitous of it was that if something dramatic or catastrophic happened, what would, what would all the nations do collectively to try and, and restart an economy after a catastrophic event? So I would say to anybody, you can download the, the, the document, the thesis, and you can read it, and it's a great read. But 
And, and, and then another little byline that governments are using are build back better. So this is all part of the great reset. So build back better, building back better, but our governments adopted it. Joe Biden's political saying was build back better. England's using it, France is using it, Italy's using it. You know, dig into that little that a bit because basically, I guess what I find really concerning is that the stop gaps, the, the, the things that used to be instituted to try and slow things down so there isn't this grand implosion aren't being put in place. And it, and it I, I got to tell you, just as a long-term guy in the game, I'm scratching my head going like, like why, right? It's just, it just continues. So I can't answer the question. The long and short of it is, is I can't answer the question. I don't know whether something's going to happen in the next six months or it's going to be 12 months or if it's going to be, you know, a year and a half from now. But I guess all I'm trying to say is that if you're an investor in real estate, make sure, and the rates have never been better, make sure that you can afford to carry that property for the long term, right? Is this a good investment and something I want for the long term? Because if it covers itself, even if prices start to go down in any kind of significant way, the good news is, is that for every downward cycle, there's a boom time that occurs again, okay? So the good times will come back as long as you're not financially pinched and put into a situation where you've got to sell, you'll be fine, right? That's what I love about real estate. I love nothing better than going and, you know, fixing up and, you know, driving by and making sure that uh, my assets are in great shape because it's, it's there. It's not like a stock where it just disappears. There's a tangibility there. So, so what you need to do is make sure you got a good management policy in place for your tenants. You got to make sure that you're a good landlord. You know, I'm, I was an excellent landlord. I took care of my tenants and I always made sure that I gave my properties in mint condition, in the condition I'd want it to be presented to me. And you have to show some flexibility and some humanity, but you also need to also manage and know if there is a problem or you do have a tenant that, that runs into financial issues, you've got to know how to mitigate that and, and act, you know, in a way that's, you got to try and nicely help them get to another place or so you don't continue and, and bear losses and so on and so forth. So there's always a way there, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. So there, right. Yep. So, so in a downturn cycle, I get what you're saying about investing in the long run. I think most of our followers and most of like our era of real estate investors, we all started with like limited capital, right? So, so what's allowed right. to grow out our portfolio is really applying like a first strategy, right? Because that just lets us recycle capital through multiple properties. So with that, you know, buy, renovate, rent, and then refinance strategy in a downward market, the ARV becomes like, like what, what is the property worth after I renovate it? That becomes the biggest question mark, right? So does that strategy of buying a property, renovating it, and then refinancing it to pull out your capital, does that work in a downward market? Or is it really just you got to buy and hold, right? Like, is that yeah. the strategy that works? Yeah, it is. It's, it's more of a, a different, I mean, again, think about it. If you're in a downward market, 
and this is the good news. If you're, if you've got cash, mm-hmm. this is going to be the time that you kind of hold on to that cash because if you're cash rich, cash is king, and you'll be able to take advantage of fantastic opportunities. But no, the the plan then becomes: you bought the property for X, you're going to spend X Y Z to fix it up in a manner that you think you're going to get your targeted rent. So, so it's a plan of attack. Here's the asset. If I do X, Y, Z, am I going to get this much? And I got to make sure that that much is going to cover all of my costs, right? And then some. I mean, when you're talking about buildings, it's a whole different game, right? There's factors that you use to make sure. But when you're just looking at assets, because this is where I started. You know, my first property that I bought, it freaked you right out. But my first mortgage was 15%. And then my ex-wife and I at the time didn't want to go CMHC insured. So we took out a second mortgage, 21%. But we literally banked her paycheck and we lived off of mine and we paid off that second mortgage right away. But historically, if you were to look at a uh, 50-year graph of interest rates, and you can pull this up, Google it on the internet for, for Canadian interest rates, you'll see that over the last 50 years, the medium average is around 6%. Okay, medium average 6%. So, and I think the stress tests that they're doing right now are around 5%, right? And, and that's another flight. If, if the banks are stress testing people based on a much higher rate than what you're paying today, that's another flag that you need to be aware of because they're predicting that interest rates at some point are going to be back around 5 or 6%. So that's just another FYI that people need to be paying attention to because it's just as clear as day. If they're stress testing you with that amount, they are foreseeing that it could possibly go up to that much. So these are little tidbits of information that you just need to pack away and realize as you proceed forward through your investment uh, venture. You know, it's, it's exciting times. Also question there, uh, two part. One is in regards to rent. So we talked about rent in Toronto, specifically downtown. Um, mm-hmm. dropping quite significantly. And there's reasons behind that, right? And that's just because obviously all the students are gone, all of the service industries are shut. Those are a lot of renters as well. Financial people who work at banks, so on and so forth, tech companies, they're they're like gone from downtown. How is yeah. rent impacted in other markets like during a downturn? Are they gen- like in the US data has generally shown that it's flat during recessions in the US, rent prices, yeah. they don't go up. They might take a small dip, but generally it's flat. Is that something, there's not much data as far as I'm, I'm aware of in Canada showing anything like that. Based on your experience, like decades of real estate investing experience, how have you noticed rent prices change during recessionary periods? And do you anticipate a large drop as well outside of the downtown core, which is a very specific market? Yeah, great question. And CMHC will give you uh, historical data on rental increases over the last 25 years. So you can obtain that through CMHC. But I guess your question is to, you know, do those increases really get implemented in a downward cycle market? And again, the beauty of, of a free market is that when a property comes available and it's ready for rent, 
you're going to gauge obviously what the rent is based by supply and demand, right? So my philosophy was that, like, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at any of my Instagram accounts that I had, but, you know, we weren't really big into social media. So I wasn't really taking photography of all the different buildings that I uh, took apart and rebuilt. But on on the on the two Instagram accounts I have there, it gives you an idea of the finished quality that I give to a tenant. So it's not luxuriously high end, but it certainly isn't low end. But I always, you, you, if you give somebody a quality product, if you build it, as they say, they will come. And when you look at rental properties, are you just naturally, if you guys are gonna go look for a rental property, are you going to, when you walk in, are you going to take one that's all freshly painted, beautifully done, updated this, updated kitchens and bathrooms, really nice lighting and, you know, all the boys, uh, the bells and whistles. And now I, I build in smart building technologies into my rentals, but, or are you going to take one that's run down, landlords not spending a lot of money, not maintaining, it's always, you know, if you want to be, I always built my units to be the you know, in the top 10% in, in appearance from the exterior of the building. Because if your outside of your building looks like crap, they're just going to drive by, right? So I always start my projects from the outside and work my way in whenever I did a renovation. So I guess there's no really easy answer. The answer really is, is, is always comes down to supply and demand. But when a market starts to go, that starts to tank, then they're those people who were owning and now are shifting into renting because they're they can't afford their home anymore. Well, they still have money. There's actually a higher demand for rental in a downward market than there is in a booming market. Right? So so landlords are winners when the market actually goes downward because those people you know, God forbid those individuals that lose their homes or something like that occurs, they're, they have to go somewhere, right? They have to live. So it, it, it sounds, you know, it's very ominous about what the potential could be. But out of that, there's so many great, so much wealth has been accumulated in downward markets more than upward markets, Right. Like right now, this is just a, a phenomenal run, but the greatest wealth is accumulated when you could get, I mean, you guys just look at your portfolio or whatever you've purchased. In, in the 1990 market downturn, the medium average, let me just see what I have here on the stats for the 1990s. There was a, a 25% decrease in overall value in, in, in residential real estate Canada-wide. During, during the 1990s, 25%. Uh, commercial real estate dropped 50%, right? But if there is an adjustment, say anywhere from 18 or 25%, you know, anything, think about, you know, obviously, and interest rates aren't gonna go up. I mean, unless something catastrophic happens and inflation starts to go, go crazy, you know, they're not gonna go up anytime soon, right? So, Think about your buying power if you're able to get those properties 25% less than what they are today. It, it's a game changer. 
the nice thing is, is that now you guys are, you know, the, the experience you're developing through purchasing uh, rental properties individually. Now you're getting yourself into a position because I think you mentioned to me uh, when we were talking last time that you guys just bought your first eight unit building. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Con congratulations by the way yeah thanks coincidentally me and Austin both bought an eight unit at the same time so that's yeah. great <laughs> that's yeah no Frank I, I think that that was crazy but I, I you know 25% average drop across Canada really means there's some markets that would have dropped way, way above that and some that would have stayed way below that right and I guess you know leading into my question here um, in a downward market like how do you what are the, like the, we've talked about indicators indicating that potentially we're at a bubble and like that we're at the peak of the market, things like that. But when the market's going down, like what indicators do you watch to decide, you know, now is the right time to jump into the market versus, you know, potentially just catching a downward, like a falling knife or whatever they call that, right? Yes. There, there, again, it's up to your individual circumstances. So remember that if there is an adjustment and it does do a 180, and starts going in the polar uh, polar opposite and starts to, to drop it. That process takes two, three, four years, five years for it to kind of level out. Okay. But you may start a new job and you may get a bonus at work. You may come into some money or you're really doing well with work and you've got that extra dough. And again, you, you find an asset that that's, that's going down. But again, your asset now is, uh, is this something I want to buy for the next 25 years for my future, right? This is, you're looking at it differently. The, just the only difference is you're putting a different set of glasses on. A pair of glasses that you guys have had on right now is quick. Can we buy? Can we, you know, renovate it, rent it and refinance, move on to the next one, right? It's, it's a different set of glasses and, and, and so the other set of glasses is going to be just as profitable, but it's now for long-term keep and hold. So what are you going to be looking for? Always location, location, location. What else are you going to be looking for? Goes back to the fundamentals. You're going to buy the worst property on the best street, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to go into, you're going to look at the markets which have a higher than normal average of rental as opposed to ownership. Those again are stats that CMHC publishes that you can you can get access to. So I don't know what areas you guys live in, right? But Hamilton, because Hamilton in that recession was an industrial city, primarily, it's not so much now, but at the time it was an industrial city. It got hammered, right? Stelco, DeFasco, people were getting laid off like crazy. CMHC lost billions. We don't, they never published what the final loss was in Hamilton, but it was billions of dollars. And that was because, you know, they even as a CMHC power of sale, and they had so many, they couldn't even release them. They had to just do a small percentage at a time so they didn't flood the market and completely completely wipe it out guys i had apartment buildings that were power of sale apartment buildings think mm. of that wow not big ones but 12 unit 24 unit 18 unit 12 6 right so but great opportunities to be had right it's a different market it was actually it was an exciting market to be in 
And, and of course, then you've got all your, you're going to see the difference between a downward market and this market is you guys are going in with one liners. Many people are buying without even a building inspection. My goodness, when we had offers back in, in, in that day, when you've got a, a downward cycle market, you've got a lot of conditions. And it wasn't unusual for you to purchase a property. And then by the time we went through our due diligence, that when we go to firm up, we'd either use the appraisal, because now we've got to remember, the appraisers are now really in a position of getting sued. So they're going to, they go into an ultra conservative mode now when the market starts to go down. So many times the appraisal even comes in lower and you use the appraisal to, to get the lower price. And many times we would use the improvements to the property that we've done through our due diligence to even lower it further. So we would have to go back, we'd remove our conditions going back firm but many times it'd be significantly less than what we agreed to in the original contract. That, that was common, right? So a whole different, whole different way of doing it, but kind of, kind of fun in its own way too, right? Really dynamic, very interesting. I, I'm, I'm glad that I went through it. The 2008 recession really, although it was a bit of a, uh, a hit, most communities in Ontario, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but most communities in Ontario fared well through the 2008. They call that the Great Recession, but reality, it, for real estate, it wasn't. It was a bit of a downward cycle, but values were, appraisers were very conservative after the 90s. And so the, the, the increases in value weren't doing what they are today. Like, it's just not explainable. So it's just different market, different market, different approach, different set of glasses. Mm-hmm. So it's so a lot of great information there. I think we want to wrap this part of the segment up in terms of thoughts on the market cycle one, and then we want to move on to your experiences in real estate investing with some of your projects, so on and so forth. Two things. First thing is, is and I'm not sure if you're able to disclose the information. Um, so let me know if you're not, but yeah. you mentioned that you work with and are connected with a lot of large institutional investors. And you said yeah. that they are holding liquidity what's their, do you have an idea of what the game plan there is? Are they holding, selling off assets and then waiting to buy in in the near future? Just, just so we have a better idea of what these big investors are doing, right? Because it's always good to to understand what like the leaders of the industry are are preparing for in the near future. Absolutely. So I, I can speak to that. So right now, as I said to you at the very beginning of the, of the podcast, a lot, of, a lot of assets don't get sold because of the gain. And so to find apartment buildings, so 100 unit apartment buildings or, or a uh, grouping of buildings was very rare. And lately in the last six months, we've seen a, I'm not gonna say a tremendous amount, but far more activity in the disposal of assets that otherwise weren't really rarely found in the last five years. So what's happening is that a lot of the institutional owners are uh, have basically done an analysis of their buildings and the ones that need a lot of work, they've been unloading to allow a new purchaser the opportunity. And then they've been taking that cash reserve and they're waiting for adjustments because I mean, right now, just the retail mixed use downtown Toronto it's getting the heck kicked out of it, right? 
all the retail that are intertwined and the small businesses that are intertwined, retail plazas getting the getting hammered, right? So people are getting rid of the assets that are that they are deemed problematic, and many are getting rid of retail, and uh, because the retail dynamic is going to change in the future. And many are even reevaluating their uh, office space holdings because we've got a lot of office space that are coming online in downtown Toronto, but the whole dynamic of business in the future is going to be different, right? It's going to be a different, I mean, I ask you a question. So are, you, you were with RPC and with the bank, were you working from home or were they actually, was there any time during this process they've had you go into the office? No, it's pretty much look with the pandemic, it's pretty much exclusively exclusively work from home. And what's gonna probably end up happening is is that there's gonna have flex schedules. So not ever, like you don't need to go to work five days a week following exactly. the pandemic, right? Like there can exactly. be a split in flexibility and working from home. Yeah, so- absolutely. And I think that's going to go on long into the future because you know, if you have a company like a like a bank, Scotiabank, Royal Bank. And they're leasing millions of square feet, but they can now cut that down to a half a million or half of what they used to have. And that's just going to help their bottom line. And their productivity has either been the same or have even gotten better based on the work at home dynamics. So there's a lot of changes we're going to see. So the institutional investors and the ones that I deal with have assets in both, right? They're diversified. And, and, and many of them were not expecting, I wrote a report a year ago predicting that we were going to see a, a, a large compression on rental values. And a few of the um, CFOs that disagreed, they thought actually the uh, multi-res would, would boom. And so, so it's just... You know, sometimes when you've been in a business for a long time, you develop, a, a, I guess, a kind of wisdom just based on experience being on the ground. And you get to, you know, think about what you guys know today compared to uh, a few years ago, whenever you first started. Just think about the wealth of information you've gained. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and you guys are smart because you're seeking out, seeking out information all the time. And that's the best thing you can do is ask brokers, ask appraisers, always have a pulse. I, you know, you're going to, you, you're going to want to build a team. That's the most, that's the most important part of your, of your success is going to have a fantastic lawyer. That is a problem solver, not a problem maker. I have a lawyer uh, that I've used for 30 years. His name is Peter Cass out of Burlington. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant mind. He's not going to say he's eccentric, but he's just, he's so brilliant, but he is a problem solver, right? And that is what you want, a problem solver. Building inspections, you want a building inspector that's going to go in, look at all what's there, but going to give you, they're going to give you realistic ways to be able to overcome any negative that may come out in a building inspection, right? There's always a solution, always a solution. Having appraisers, I have an, a team of appraisers that I used for years, not because I knew that they would come in lower or better, but I developed a relationship with them. And, you know, they worked, we worked together as a team, but integrity 
and making sure you're dealing with people that are honest and are, are, are long-term business individuals that have been in the business forever or the types of people you want for your team. So Frank, I think that was a, that was a great part one of the episode for, do you, do you have any other, any other words of wisdom or any other message that you want to communicate to our listeners before we wrap up part one? Words of wisdom. <laughs> I don't want people to be panicking. I think that the important part of this segment was to just be, make sure that people are buyer beware and your eyes are wide open and, and just pay attention to what's being uh, written and make sure that, you know, when you're I, real estate as a whole, the industry has a vested interest to always be positive and to publish statements and articles that are not going to talk about a downward cycle. They're going to always be talking about an upward cycle. It's because they have a vested interest to do so, right? All businesses actually have a vested interest. So just research and uh, dig into what happened in the 1990s. It's very interesting. There's papers written about it and everything else. And and just be buyer beware. We're in a buyer beware uh, marketplace. But the great news is, is that when there is an adjustment, there's going to be fantastic opportunities and it's just going to be a different way to, for you to focus your energy with regards to building long-term wealth rather than short-term right now, it's all been boom, boom, quick money. Now it's going to be building that wealth for a long-term asset that you love and that you want to keep and hold. And that's, I, I, I want people to feel good about uh, the future because there's cycles and now it's time for you to start learning about all the different cycles in real estate. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like real estate should obviously always be a long-term investment, but I think a lot of our generation and a lot of what the media sensationalizes and part of part of it is, is my, you and I have also kind of put that out there is that we've grown our portfolio really quick. So a lot of people want to get that get rich quick scheme, but that's not what real estate is, right? We buy this with the intention of holding it for the long term. So you definitely, definitely bought that point home. So Good. thank you so much for this. Frank gave a lot You're of great welcome. insight into the market, shared your expertise, your thoughts. Thank it's you. a good balanced view as well, right? Because we have a lot of people on here who might not have the experience that you have. And as you mentioned, like the more experience you have, the better insights you can pull. And that's just what it is with any industry. So again, Frank, really appreciate this. And uh, we're going to, Obviously, we're going to be filming part two of the segment. So for the, our audience out there, tune in because if you enjoyed this episode, now we can dig even deeper into what Frank is doing right now in real estate investing, some of his different businesses, smart home technology. We're going to go into a real life case study as well of a project yeah. that he finished. It's going to be a fantastic episode. So tune in next week for that episode.